I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. Question. What Boston sports team won five national championships in the last six years? Hint. It wasn't the Red Sox, Patriots, Celtics, or Bruins. The answer? The Boston Renegades, the professional women's football team little known or supported by most local sports fans. In fact, it's the local women's teams that have been winning championship after championship to much less fanfare than their male counterparts at Fenway or Gillette Stadium. But a just-announced new Boston-based National Hockey League team and an expected expansion franchise of the National Women's Soccer League could be the catalyst for local women's teams finally, to get the respect and higher profile they have earned. Joining me, Shira Springer, sports journalist and lecturer in managerial communication at MIT. Hi, Shira. Hello. Also with me, Reverend Laura Everett, executive director of the Massachusetts Council of Churches and author of the blog, Boston Women's Sports. Hello, Reverend Laura. Hi. So I'll start with you, Reverend Laura, because you've Uh, created a blog to cover women's sports teams, and you created it, you said, out of rage. Tell us about it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, sometimes you have to try to build the world that you want to see. You know, and it started for me on November 26, uh, 2021, when I opened the Boston Globe sports section and realized that they had run a full 12 pages of sports coverage without a single mention of women. And this was the day after Formiga retired from international play from soccer. This is a player so universally important to soccer that there had never been an Olympics without her. But she didn't exist, and neither did any other woman. So from that day on, I started doing a gender audit of the Globe Sports section. And I started looking at other local media outlets. I had known it was bad, but I just didn't realize exactly how biased local coverage of uh, pro-women's teams were. It was as if professional women's sports team didn't exist in Boston. But we have three professional women's sports teams. And I will say, Shira, uh, following up on what um, Reverend Laura has said, however, a lot of people don't know we have three professional women's sports teams or didn't know, uh, perhaps before they read her blog, if they were fortunate enough to read it. But I would wager there's probably probably plenty of people who still don't know. Yeah, I think people don't know what Boston has because uh, all of the women's sports teams here have been so under the radar and they have struggled mightily to build fan bases, to draw attention, both media attention and attention from potential local supporters, whether it's investors or fans. Um, They have struggled to draw attention because they are competing essentially for time and money um, and fan attention with the local men's professional teams. Um, So that has been a huge hurdle for the women's teams to overcome. Um, It is very, very hard for women's professional sports to get a foothold in this city. And I was so happy to hear you mention the Renegades because they're a great example of a championship 
team, a high caliber women's professional team that simply is virtually unknown. And as we said, they won five championships. They probably would have won six if the pandemic hadn't shut down the 2020 season. Just so people understand how good they are, here's a clip from a July Boston Renegades semifinal. This is the WFA Pro Eastern Conference Final. The winner will earn a spot in the national championship game in Canton, Ohio at Tom Benson Field. The Renegades are 7 0 and fresh off a 17, that's 7 0, 17 to 14 win over the DC Divas. Tonight, they will clash with the new national conference rivals, the Alabama Fire. They went on to do well in, uh, in that game, but that's just a 7 0. My God. I mean, so for a while, there's been a big conversation going on. Uh, primarily, I think for the general public, not sports fans particularly, um, but of course, this the group does also include, include sports fans of people who have been following the Women's World Cup, the soccer team. That really got people excited. The team members, uh, then of course, we know the team members went on to engage in a, in a well-covered fight about money and equity and how they play. But just just the World Cup itself, the Women's World Cup, has just drawn so much attention. So just get a sense of that again. Listen to this record-breaking report regarding the Australia versus Ireland Women's World Cup game on July the 20th. That's just this year. And while waving flags and banging drums, thousands of cheering fans filled Stadium Australia last night ahead of the World Cup's second match. Australian and Irish supporters, both draped in green and gold, have come together for a sellout crowd of 70,000, a record attendance for a women's soccer match in the country. All right, let's talk about the impact of the Women's World Cup um, and how it has helped to elevate women's sports in general, women's sports teams in general. And perhaps maybe you both have something to say about what it hasn't been able to do uh, for the other professional women's sports. I'll start this time with you, Shira. Yeah, I mean, it's been amazing. You mentioned the Women's World Cup that recently concluded um, in Australia and just phenomenal viewership numbers, phenomenal attendance um, numbers. They set record in attendance. They also had 570 million um, in revenue. And I think like one of the, the statistics that really stands out um, to me, though, in the home host country of Australia, the Australian women's national team played England in a semifinal and that game was the most watched television show in Australian history. Wow. Um, and it, yeah, and it drew, I believe it was something around 11 million viewers. Um, so that means that would be more than the men's team. Yes. And, the, and, and women's teams have, you know, at least the U.S. women's team have outdrawn, have generated larger viewerships, higher ratings um, than the men's teams for major World Cup tournament games. So to answer your question, what has the World Cup done? It has really brought the country together in its fandom for women's sports. It has it helps that we have a women's team that is incredibly successful. Um, not this year, but in past years. You know, obviously they were coming in as two-time champions of the Women's World Cup. But you have that as a backdrop, and it is something that has. Uh, I think, opened people's eyes to what is possible with women's sports. All right. So, uh, Reverend Laura, how do you respond to the question of whether 
or how, not whether, or how the uh, Women's World Cup coverage and professional teams in general have boosted interest in women's sports across the board. I agree with Shira 100%. You know, what is baffling, though, is um, every four years with the World Cup, we see these massive numbers and uh, that show every time that there is huge interest, there's a desire, but what um, continues to be a major blind spot is around investment. There's never been a talent gap, but there's always been an investment gap. Um, and there's a kind of sexism that continues to be tolerated in sports that is just um, intolerable. Sports aren't inherently male, but in so many spaces, we've come to accept them as such. Um, so many of these professional leagues um, where the women's side has been decades um, and sometimes centuries um, where men have had a head start. And we tend to compare the two and then argue that um, the women just aren't performing up uh, to the men's standards. So if, if you think about, say, the NBA and the WNBA, the men's side have a 50-year head start. You talk about the NHL and the professional women's hockey league um, that we'll see starting up again in 2024. That's a 107-year head start. But the Boston Pride, we're selling out their home stadiums. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Shira Springer, sports journalist and lecturer in managerial communication at MIT, and Reverend Laura Everett, author of the blog Boston Women's Sports. We're discussing women's sports in Massachusetts and beyond. I just wanted to give people a sense of, you know, how good the Boston Pride uh, team is. So this is a clip from Boston Pride's 2021 Isabel Cup win. Um, uh, this is the sports commentator announcing their victory. Can Minnesota get back down and get one more shot? Amanda Bouye, seven seconds, just throws it towards the net. Three seconds. And after five long years, the wait is over. The Isabel Cup belongs to Boston once more. <laughs> All right, Shira, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're absolutely right in terms of there is, you know, it, men's sports have a tremendous head start, but I think there are some positive signs that we should mention yeah, um, in of terms of investment, because there are particularly female leaders out there trying to raise up women's sports and increase investment. And I think of two specific examples, Ally Financial and yes. their backing of the National Women's Sports League. And as a result of Ally's sponsorship of the NWSL, they were able for the first time in the 10-year history of the NWSL to broadcast uh, their championship game live on network television in prime time. And that is so significant to have that broadcast window because you're mentioning how hard it is to find coverage and the need to see these teams and these women in action. But that's a good example of where a sponsor is investing in a way that is going to increase exposure. And then the other thing that comes to mind, the other group that comes to mind is actually a new VC um, that capitalist. launched. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, sorry, venture capitalist, Monarch Collective. 
And um, it was co-founded by uh, Kara Nortman, who is also a co-owner and co-founder of Angel City FC, an, an NWSL team. Um, and it's also uh, co-founded by a woman by the name of Jasmine Robinson. And I talked with them recently and they are focused on investing in women's sports. Their whole enterprise is dedicated to raising money. They've got a little over a hundred million at this point raised, and they are going to figure out from there what are the best investments to grow the women's sports ecosystem. That may be media, that may be partnering with some teams or leagues. They're not sure, but I think the desire is there to invest in women's sports, and there are, quite frankly, women making it happen. Well, one of the women making it happen is Billie Jean King. People may know her from tennis. Um, and she is now part of a group that are bringing a new franchise, new hockey league franchise, the Professional Women's Hockey League. Uh, and six, in six cities, they're going to three in Canada and three in the United States. But to both of your points, the reason they picked three in the United States, one of them being Boston, and this is you know, really recently announced, the other two are New York uh, City's tri-state area and Minneapolis-St. Paul, is because all these cities had a track record of supporting uh, women's hockey league uh, teams. And so they didn't want to begin trying to sort of recreate the wheel. They wanted to go where the wheel had been created. And in fact, uh, you know, people were driving along in Cadillacs, if you will, <laughs> to some degree. So, uh, Laura, I heard you, Reverend Laura, I heard you wanted to, to comment. Yeah, so two things. One is um, we did an interview on bostonwomensports.com um, with um, some of the fans who were organizing to try to keep a team here in Boston. It was a group called the Pride Diehards, named after the Boston Pride, um, because there was really a sense um, that there was a strong fan base here. Um, the other interesting piece, again, to Shira's point about the um, women investing in pro sports um, from the Monarch Collective, um, Jasmine Robinson is one of the um, new principal investors in the group um, that has made the bid for the Boston National Women's Soccer Team that is planning on rehabbing White Stadium in Boston. Which is in Franklin Park for people, because I never heard of it before. Yeah. So, um, you know, another really interesting development is uh, this public-private partnership where the ownership group um, for Boston Unity um, Soccer Club would commit $30 million to rehab White Stadium, which is owned by the city of Boston and Boston Public Schools, and would play uh, the, their home games at White Stadium. Um, and it would be this interesting partnership with the city. And we're seeing um, you know, a commitment to an urban stadium uh, on top of a $50 million buy-in to be an NWSL franchise. Um, and it's an all-women ownership group. A uh, really interesting possibility for those of us who are excited about another pro women's team um, with some very interesting uh, commitments about local purchasing, local collaboration, and a local development league. Yeah. One of the interesting things about White Stadium, and we're talking about the NWSL coming back and generating a, a larger fan base, as I understand it, it's about a 10,000 seat 
capacity. And when I went to Breakers games before they folded uh, in 2018, you know, they were, the fans were rattling around in 30,000 seat Harvard Stadium. Um, and so the White Stadium and its renovation, in addition to being good for Boston public schools and nice to see a, a new updated stadium on the map in Boston, um, it's nice to see a stadium that is right-sized for the type of crowds uh, that the Breakers can probably expect to get uh, when they relaunch in Boston. So I just see this uh, this announcement as one that's going to really open up uh, the possibilities for the professionals and for those fa- there are fans um, who can't and don't know. Uh, in addition to the rest of us who just don't know, there there are fans waiting to embrace as well. Two stories. Um, one is that we hosted a watch party for the U.S. Women's National Team first game, and we partnered with a local Vietnamese restaurant. Um, with the expanded uh, World Cup tournament, there were so many more teams for whom it was their first uh, World Cup, uh, including Vietnam. And so, um, you know, to partner with a local restaurant and to watch with um, a more diverse crowd than maybe who shows up for um, a U.S. women's national team game was such a blast. And um, we really see that, like, there are a lot more fans out there for soccer. It's a global game. And I think there's a real opportunity to invite more people um, to watch more soccer locally. And then, uh, you know, there are also more players who have Boston roots for so many more teams. Um, When we were watching the World Cup, we noticed that um, one of the players for the Jamaican national team was born in Lynn, Massachusetts. Um, China Lee Matthews was playing in her first World Cup, and she's born in Lynn. She also plays for the Chicago Red Stars, one of the NWSL teams. Now, we put this post up on our social media, and it was one of our most liked, most shared. Um, You know, there were campaigns starting to give her the keys to the city of Lynn. Um, But look, like, we've got uh, local talent. Aaliyah Boston, who plays in the WNBA, uh, grew up in Worcester. Um, We've got tons of local talent to celebrate. Um, You know, the Boston Renegade, uh, when I went to watch, I was... Uh, stunned by, um, it was one of the most um, unabashedly Black and unashamedly queer events in Boston that I had been to in a very long time. And that's a team that has not lost a game since May 19th, 2018. Five consecutive championships. And I continue to wonder, what more do we expect of these pro teams? Well, we expect. We, we hope that uh, they're about to get more support. I want to get a quick response from the two of you about the rumored at this point, but the expectation that there will be an expansion franchise of the National Women's Soccer League in Boston as well. Um, what do you, what say you, Shira, to the impact of that? And the same thing to you, same question to you, Reverend Laura. Yeah, I would say expectation is the right way to refer to it. I mean, I fully expect um, that there will be a team um, in Boston. And it's exciting because if you know anything about the history of the Breakers, they were one of what I would call the founding franchises Mm -hmm. of women's pro soccer um, in the U.S. They were there in 2000 um, when the WUSA started up. Um, They were there 
you know, through it all, through thick and thin, really until they folded um, after the 2017 season. And there was a very strong, um, passionate fan base that was devoted to the Breakers. So I know that they'll be back um, rooting for the team. And I think the interesting thing to watch for with regard to the Breakers is to see how they meet the challenge of drawing in more fans. Uh, Reverend Laura. Um, I'm thrilled. Uh, personally and professionally, I am thrilled that there is a bid for a Boston uh, women's professional soccer team. And I'm excited about the possibility of this being a decisively urban stadium. Um, you know, I think what we've seen in the league, as Shira has said, is that there is a new high bar being set for what community engagement and investment looks like. We've seen that with Angel City FC and the deep levels of engagement it is doing to build a diverse and committed fan base. And we've seen that with uh, Kansas City really investing in a training and facility that is dedicated to the flourishing of uh, women and non-binary athletes. And as we're looking at the partnership in Boston between BPS and this uh, private venture capital um, uh, community, we're going to see what this looks like in Boston. Will this really make a difference in the majority black and brown neighborhoods surrounding it? And for the um, students and athletes that are partners, um, we expect good neighbors out of this. And uh, as it uses um, and claims the mass port procurement model, um, will the neighborhood around it flourish as well? Well, I thank you both for joining me for this great conversation, and I uh, can't wait to see what happens. So thank you. Likewise. <laughs> me too. Thank you. Shira Springer is a sports journalist and lecturer in managerial communication at MIT, and Reverend Laura Everett is the executive director of the Massachusetts Council of Churches and author of the blog, Boston Women's Sports. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Jesse Steinmetz and our intern, Miriam Hadara. Our engineer is Dave Goodman. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. Listen again on Thursday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. Thank you.